My wife and I have had frequent discussions over the years about what constitutes a true friend, what constitutes a good friend. We've, we've had these conversations in the context of thinking uh, about people we've known, relationships that we've had in and out of the church, watching our children and uh, in their lives and how they deal with different situations. And we have these conversations keenly aware of our gross deficiencies in the area of being friends. Uh, the problems that we have of, of finitude, of being spread too thin, sometimes problems of our own making, uh, sometimes just the nature of things, and, and other times where we just fail, period. But we still study those anyway in hopes of being better friends and, and recognizing what it is that we appreciate people and the kind of friends that we want to collect because the kind of friends that you have are important. Proverbs certainly testifies to that, the value of certain kinds of friends. Let me give you just a few of the examples that reveal themselves in Proverbs that instruct, instruct us about friendship. One of these is Proverbs ten twelve: Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Proverbs thirteen twenty: He who walks with wise men will be wise. The companion of fools will be destroyed. Proverbs 17, 17, of course, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Proverbs 18, 24, a man who has friends must himself be friendly. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. 22, 11, he who loves purity of heart and has grace on his lips, the king will be his friend. Usefully, Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Proverbs 27.9, ointment and perfume delight the heart, and the sweetness of a man's friend gives delight by hearty counsel. And then, of course, we know this one well, Proverbs 27.17, as iron sharpens iron, so, man, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. In shorthand, we could say that, that when describing a true friend, the best kind of friend, we'd say a friend covers in love our weaknesses and failures. A friend also confronts our besetting sins. A friend gives counsel that has wisdom. A friend comforts in losses. A friend contributes to you in your needs. And also a friend congratulates you in your wins. Our sins are, are, are too many to have them all confronted. We understand that. They're, they're also so dangerous at times that they desperately need to be confronted. We all have down times, sad times, times where we are in great need and What's a friend for if they're not there in those circumstances? Many of you could, could testify to, to people around you who, who show up in these areas. But one of the ones that surprises us that oftentimes goes missing on this is the, the, the importance of, of having a friend who congratulates you in your wins. And that can be any kind of win, but not just the kind where, again, Pastor Dodds talked about this morning when someone scores a touchdown and it, you know, it's a big win. That's, that's great. You want a friend that congratulates you there. But you also want a friend who congratulates you in those things that mean the most in a Christian sense. Someone who affirms those things done well, as in when you've humbled yourself and gone to someone and repented of sin to them. That is a massive win in the Christian life when, when you've actually done that for the first time. The world would see that as a loss to, to humble yourself in that way. And that's why you need a Christian friend who congratulates you and said, well done, you did that the right, the right way. I'm so proud of you. Those times when you've shown courage, when you've testified to something that's true, you've, you've, you've tried to witness to someone, to bring the gospel to them, to have someone, a parent that comes along and says, you know, I know that didn't go well, but I'm so proud of you for the effort. 
Or those times where, where you manifest love, when you go to that, that, that stranger, that, that, that student in, in, in the youth group that, that just shows up but feels out of touch. And when you extend yourself and you go and you wrap your arm around them and say, hey, come on, come on over here with us. Those are big wins. And those should be commended. And by this definition, the Apostle Paul is that kind of a friend. A friend that shows up and congratulates you when you need congratulation. And he does so in a particular way that tonight we're going to look at. My, my intention, and if, if the, you find out that Old Testament reading makes no sense, that's because it's not going to make any sense in the context of what we're preaching, because the intention was to preach through verse 10. Uh, and I got to about 12 or 13 pages of notes in the second verse and decided we're going to have to lop some of this off. And so if you stick around for the next sermon, then can remember that Old Testament reading, it'll make more sense then. This evening I want to look at verses, actually verses 1 through 5. I'll, I'll go back and hit just briefly verse 1, but um, actually not verse 5, but we'll, we'll actually stop at verse 4. And we'll call that enough for tonight. And so let's pray and ask for the Spirit's help in looking at these verses. Our Lord, we do thank you that you are willing to hear us when we come to you and cry out and testify of our need. And so we plead with you for the Spirit's presence among us, that we would receive your word with gladness, with thankfulness, and with humility, that we might be instructed even by the example and this teaching of the Apostle Paul. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're looking for an outline, a way that we'll look at this, in the, in the first verse you'll have a repeating of an apostolic introduction, grace and peace, those familiar beginnings to the epistle. In verse 2, uh, remembering this people, the Thessalonian people, to God, which is a habit of Paul in prayer. Verse 3 will be a recalling of specific virtues, and verse 4 will be recognizing God's election into family. So, Repeating an apostolic introduction, remembering this people to God, recalling their virtues, and recognizing God's election in to family. Verse 1 is, again, it's a familiar part of Paul's epistles. We don't have to go into it and spend a great deal of time. It was just, we had an introductory sermon recently where this was covered. But what Paul does here is typical, but it's not unappreciated. He identifies who he is. He's Paul. His companions are Silvanus and Timothy. Silvanus... Uh, you would probably know as Silas, one of those who was there at the Jerusalem council, sent out to bear the, the good news of the gospel to the Gentiles to tell them the terms in which they would be brought into fellowship. The point is, is that, that these are close companions of Paul, and they've also ministered in the context of Thessalonica. They were part of that missionary team, and they are now responding with this letter. And it is, of course, to the church in Thessalonica, that, that church in that city just down the road from Berea on the Ignatian Way, uh, near Apollyon and Amphipolis, it is called the mother city in Macedonia, Macedonia being the northern part of Greece. It's populated mostly by Gentiles. There were some Jews who were present there, and they were those who had heard the gospel. And in hearing the gospel, they responded in faith, they believed the gospel, and they were established as a church. And as a church, it makes sense for them to receive those words of Paul, grace to you and peace from the God and Father from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That apostolic celebration of the grace of God to them as a body that they had been recipients of his favor to receive the word and to believe it. And because of that, they were granted reconciliation. They were granted peace with God, that, that perfect standing that we all need more than anything in all the universe. And in a sense, what Paul does in what follows is he actually expands on that grace and peace in particular ways particular ways, testifying to them about who they are and how he has known them 
in his experience with them. And he testifies this to them in a, in a strange way. He does it by detailing to them in kind of a systematic way his prayer life. And so this is what we come to in verse 2. Verse 2, he's remembering the people to God. How he does this, it says, he writes to them, he opens up the letter in, in what he wants to communicate, and he says, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you or remembering you in our prayers. This is a systematic explanation of his prayer life. How will... In, some ways, Paul's going to show something about his theology uh, that he actually studied the Shorter Catechism. I know it was 1,600 years before it was actually written, and so that would probably throw you off a little bit. But he knew it, and it's reflected in what you just testified yourselves to just a few moments ago when question 98 asked, what is prayer? And it answers in this way, prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God. He is praying to God. And it seems like that's something that could go without saying. Do we need to say that prayer is offered up to God? But in our day, we actually don't. We need to be reminded that prayer is, is personal. It is to God. It is not offered up to the universe. We don't throw out prayers. They are specific requests made to a specific person, to a holy God who is able to hear those prayers that come up to him from our lowly place on earth. He's able to hear those prayers and he's actually able to answer those prayers because he is God Almighty. He has power over all the universe, over all the, over, over all the earth and over the world in which we live. And so Paul prays to God. He also shows his catechism man in this and, and that he, the answer to question 100, what does the preface of the Lord's Prayer teach us? And the preface of the Lord's Prayer, which is our Father which art in heaven, teaches us to draw near to God with all holy reverence and confidence as children to a Father, able and ready to help us, and that we should pray with and for others. Paul's prayer is for them all. He says, I, we give thanks to God always for you all. He is praying for the whole of the church, all of the individuals that comprise the membership of the church in Thessalonica. He has all of them in mind when he prays. And how does he pray? Well, he tells us in verses 2 and also verse 3 how he prays. He says, we give thanks to God always for you all. Remembering without ceasing, he says in verse 3. Paul is saying he has a habit of going to God for them in prayer. This is not a spontaneous prayer. And spontaneous prayers are wonderful when you, when you just have that, that, that exigency, that situation, that emergency that says this is a time to pray and offer up something to God. But Paul is talking not about those kind of prayers, which are always good and appropriate, but he's talking about the habit of praying, of continually a, a sustained effort to bring these people to God. And this is actually part of his pattern, his way of doing business as an apostle. Let me, let me take you on a quick tour. This is going to be a, a Pastor Carl sermon. There's going to be a lot of tours through Scripture. You're going to wear out your, your Bibles, risk of paper cut. You know, should be on the bulletin somewhere. But let, let me show you his pattern of prayer. Go back to Romans 1. Romans 1, the introduction to that very substantial epistle, writing to a similar group of people, Jews and Gentiles. Paul says in Romans 1, 9, for God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. I'm going to take you to another example, Ephesians 1.6. 
I'm sorry, Ephesians 1.16, Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. If you want to see another example, Philippians 1.3, the beginning of that epistle, Paul says in Philippians 1.3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. 2 Timothy 1.3, letter not to a church but to an individual, he says, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day. And then Philemon 4, another letter to an individual, he says, I thank my God making mention of you always in my prayers. There's a reason for Paul's consistency in prayer. He's serious about his prayer quantity. In fact, you notice in several of those ways he introduces that he talks about his his religion, his heartfelt religion, his, his loyalty to Jesus Christ. And he even calls God to witness the fact that he is praying in this way. What he's saying is, I'm not just saying this as a platitude. I'm not saying this is a nice Jesus speak in the church. That it's nice to say, oh, I've been praying for you. No, when Paul says it, he's saying, as God is my witness, I have been praying for you constantly. You have been on my mind and I am continuing to bring you before God. And, and, and it is as he testifies there when he says that he serves God with a pure conscience as his forefathers did. And what he means by that is that he is looking at the pattern of prayer in the Old Testament. Again, if you want to go back, you can see the pattern of prayer in the Psalms. Psalm 46, verses 4 and 5, the sons of Korah is, uh, is attributed as the, the writer of the psalm. It says, There is a river whose streams make, shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. You see, that in a sense, the this, this song is celebrating the work of God. It's also a prayer to God to, for God to show up, to, to guard what's his. Psalm 74, too, Psalm of Solomon. He prays, remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, the tribe of your inheritance, which you have redeemed, this Mount Zion where you have dwelt. See how there he brings the congregation of God together with the idea of the tabernacle of God. Psalm 77, verse 11 and 12. Psalm of Asaph. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on all your work and talk of your deeds. What, what, what he is praying for and the remembrance there is of the work of the Lord. And actually as we come back to the passage, you're going to see that all of these things are going to be true. Psalm 84.1. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. Because what Paul is doing here is he's recognizing in the old covenant and the prayers that, they, that were made for the tabernacle are being filtered through the theology of the New Testament, which Paul also teaches when he says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, Do you not know that you are the temple of God, and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. And this all feeding into what Paul is praying here in the opening of this epistle to the Thessalonians is, is he is deeply embedded in praying for them and investing in them because he knows this is the place where the Spirit of God dwells in this particular people as he does in all of the churches who have embraced the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think if he, if he said this about the church in, in Corinth. Man, those people had problems. You've heard that before. And here's the, the people who are doing so well in Thessalonica in the way that they're beginning. He recognizes the glory of the Lord here. He's praying for that, the glory of the Lord here. And so, of course, he is, he is remembering them before God. He is celebrating the Lord's work. And that's what we come to in that third verse. Look in verse 3 back in 1 Thessalonians 1. 
He says in his prayers that he is remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God, of our God and Father. This church has, has given great encouragement to Paul to remember them because of what he can remember about them. Remember, Paul had been, been there just a short time before. He had, he had come there, uh, coming from, from Berea, he had, he, had, he had been having to flee from, from previous locations, and he comes there and he, and he preaches the word as he's given opportunity to do it. And, and, and amazingly, as the Spirit of God works, these people, so many of them pagans, hear the word and believe upon the word, and it brings a crisis in their community. They're, they're beginning to be persecuted at the very beginning of their situation, and yet they're holding on to Christ in spite of that. And so Paul is celebrating what he's seeing in them, their work of faith, their labor of love, their patience of hope. And, and these, are, these are terms that are useful. They're actually full of meaning if you consider what's going on there. And they're probably the best way to understand them is this. The first one of those is the work produced by faith. The second one of those is the labor prompted by love. And the third is the patience or the endurance that's inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Hopefully you recognize in there some of those terms that come up, that, that triumvirate of Christian virtues, faith and love and hope. And this is actually something that, that, that we see throughout the New Testament. You would see faith, love, and hope in 1 Peter 1, 21 and 22, Hebrews 10, 22 to 24, Romans 5, 1 through 5, all of those, are you're going to see all of those come up. These virtues are going to be celebrated uh, by Peter and by the writer of Hebrews and by Paul. And then in particular locations, Colossians 1, 4 and 5, Paul says, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. And of course, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, we know that so well. In Paul's exposition of what love is, at the end of it he concludes, he says, And now abide faith, hope, love. These three, but the greatest of these is love. And even as we come near the end of this epistle, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 8, Paul will say, But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate, breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation given that those keep showing up they 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 keep appearing in scripture paul keeps wanting to make much of these as do the other gospel writers or the other epistle writers they're worth paying attention to and so let's let's take a few moments to look at those the first of those the work produced by faith and right away we have kind of this this interesting dilemma uh scotty we've been told that that Faith and works aren't supposed to go together. We, we, we want to, to put those on opposite sides of the spectrum. I mean, think of the catechism question. What is faith in Jesus Christ? It's a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel. But Paul is here joining words that we often want to separate. And you could look and you could say maybe it has to do with what Jesus says in John 6. When the disciples asked, what shall we do that we may do the works of God? And Jesus answers and says to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in whom you believe in him whom he sent. And so you can say, well, the, the, the work that Paul's talking about is the work of believing. But actually what we find is that, is that works are very much going to be attached to faith throughout what Paul has to say to Christian disciples. And so again, another Pastor Carl tour of scripture here. 
The fruit of faith is what is being produced in this church. They are doing works, good works, because their hearts have been changed. How do we know this? We see in Ephesians 2.10, this is what we are created for. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Good works are the result of God-empowered grace, 2 Corinthians 9.8. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that always having all sufficiency in all things, you may have an abundance for every good work. Grace is supposed to produce works. It's also expected by God. Colossians 1.10. Paul's desire that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul writes to, to, to Timothy and he will, he will point to it being a result of being sanctified. He says in 2 Timothy 2.21, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor sanctified and useful to the master, prepared for every good work. And it's also an object of prayer. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 1, the start of the next epistle, he says, Therefore we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. And this is, of course, what what our confession actually teaches. This is what our theology teaches Confession of Faith 16 tells us we have a whole chapter describing what it is, what good works are. The opening paragraph in that section reads, Good works are only such as God hath commanded in his holy word, and are not not such as without the warrant thereof are devised by men out of blind zeal or upon any pretense of good intention. And then it says this importantly in in the next paragraph. It says, These good works done in obedience to God's commandments, are the fruits and evidences of a true and a lively faith. This is what is expected to show up if your faith is genuine, if you've truly embraced Christ and not some other false Christ. If you've embraced the true Christ, the result will be that in your life that fruit is going to come out of it. It goes on, it says in that that paragraph, it says, and by them believers manifest their thankfulness. They strengthen their own assurance. They edify build up their brethren. They adorn their profession of the gospel. They make it so that it's desirable for other people. They stop the mouths of adversaries and glorify God whose workmanship they are created, as scripture says, in Christ Jesus thereunto and having their fruit unto holiness that they may have the end eternal life. Paul is celebrating in this church as we go back to this epistle. Paul is celebrating in them this manifestation of, of faith that's in them in the works that it's producing is that they show their say by the, by the, the decisions they're making and the choices that, that they're, the, the, the things they're saying no to and the things that they're saying yes to. Paul goes on, he extols a second virtue there. He says they're laborer of love, they're labor prompted by love. And he's using a heavier term there. The first is works, the second is labor or toil. And it's, it's for the church in that sense of it's, it's operating out of that most fundamental fruit of the Spirit. As Pastor Dodds has been, t- been testifying through as he's preaching through Galatians 5. And the, fr- the, the, the chief of those, the, the, the fruit born of the Spirit is love. And what is love? But it's this turning away of these individuals in this church from the lives that they were living for themselves towards others. 
And this is the, 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 the definition of Christian love. And certainly when we talk about love, sometimes scripture will point to it as being affection for another person or affection for something. But the definition that, that the, the, the apostles are most wanting to get to and the epistle writers and Paul is most wanting to get to is that one that we learn from looking at the Lord Jesus Christ. It's this self-sacrificial action for the benefit of another person. It's when you deprive yourself, you hurt yourself, you spend yourself, not on yourself, but for the good of someone else. And of course we see that as this common refrain in scripture, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Ephesians 5, 2, Paul says, walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. Ephesians 5.25, that word to husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the wrath bearer for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And of course, Jesus says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Beloved, if God so loved us, or greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Paul is praying to God, and he's praying to God. He's celebrating what he has seen in the Thessalonians. Is that they, they, they have had their lives transformed by the presence of Christ, and they have learned to love, and they are now giving of themselves. They have, they have stopped being these, these self-oriented takers, and they have become others-oriented people, and they have become givers. Because of the power of Jesus Christ, they are taking on the persona of Jesus Christ. And then, of course, there's that, that third virtue that that. that Paul is going to extol that is found in the Thessalonians, that patience or that endurance that's inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And this, I think, is where Paul is drawing attention to the cost of their faith, is that they have gone down a road, they have taken a path when, when Christ has intruded into their world by the word, by, by the word preached, the gospel coming into their community that, that has transformed them, has turned their world upside down, has reoriented them, And it is costing them. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, it is the freest gift of all, but it is not in any way a cheap grace. It makes demands, it expects pains, it colors the the language of the New Testament. The the picture that you get when you you read through your Bible, if you take it seriously and don't just skip around, as you will find, it's a a picture of difficulty, of trials, of, of persecutions. Of, of, of saying no to things that are enjoyable. It's Pastor, Pastor Dodds talked about this morning of, of saying no to things and learning to enjoy things in a different level, finding joy in a different way, in a different place. But it's demanding, it's costly, it's expensive, and it requires perseverance. And Paul is saying that there is a reason that they have changed, there's a reason that they're patient or enduring, and it's because they've been given a hope that they didn't have before. What, what is hope? We, we hear that term a lot. It's not one of the ones that's not in our catechism. We don't have a question that answers what is hope. So it's worth thinking about. And basically, hope is an expectation of some good coming in the future. 
And if you think about what the opposite of hope is, the opposite of hope is going to be fear. Fear is the expectation of some bad coming in the future, something that you don't want to come, that you're dreading, it's, it's a, that you're approaching into that thing that you fear. But hope is an expectation of something good, and there's different kinds of hope that you can have. There's the hope of experience. All of us have gone through this at some point in time. It usually happens the time, you know, time you're three or four years old, and you experience the first time that you, you fall down and you skin your knee, and maybe, I don't know if, if your parents are as cruel as, I, as mine were, but you'd, you'd fall down and you skin your knee and it hurt a lot. And they would say, well, we need to take care of that. And they would pull out the alcohol uh, and the cotton and they would put the alcohol on it to, to save your life from infection. Um, and when it happened, you thought you were going to die. And you're like, the skin knee was just fine. Why did, why did you put alcohol on me? This is horrible. And you think you're going to die, but then you don't. Maybe it's like my first experience, the first time I had wasabi. I thought it was the same as a jalapeno. Explodes up through my nose, and I think, this, if this doesn't go away soon, I will die. Um, thankfully, it was short-lived. And I said, okay, that's fine. Let's do this again. That's a hope of experience. And, and that's not a great spiritual quality. That's a useful tool to have, but that's just the hope of experience. You learn that I can get through this, and this will be okay on the other side. There's also the hope of optimism. There's when you have a cheerful attitude, and you're just always kind of looking on the brighter side, and you're looking for better things. That's another kind of hope. There's also the hope of longing. And the hope of longing is something that we can surely all identify with. That's this, this desire for something better. That there is something and can be something out there that's better than the present situation. All of those are great. Those are nice hopes. They're, they're understandable. You can appreciate those. You want your neighbor to, to be hopeful in those ways. The alternative is not good. But this is not the kind of hope that, that, that Paul is talking about witnessing in Thessalonica. Paul is talking about an objective hope, a grounded hope. This is not something that they've learned. They haven't learned that their difficulty is going to end soon. It's not like there's an initial dust up about Jesus in the community, but everybody's kind of over it now. That, that's not what's going on. They're not looking to a brighter future by a better, co- a better governor. They're not thinking, if we can just make it to the next election, things are going to be okay. This is the Roman Empire. You were not dealing in elections at this time. These were not a positive people with a cheery outlook that, that, were, that were just you know, hoping for something better in that way. And see, the thing is that the gospel and the hope that it gives is not one that gives you a short-term benefit of hope. It's one that requires you to look past today. And to look past next week, and to look past next month, and next year, and to look to the end of all things when Christ comes back, when Christ returns. It's, it's driving us in that direction. It's looking for a later and a latter day. That's where our hope comes from. And in fact, Paul is going to testify to this continually to the Thessalonians, certainly because their situation warranted it. This is not as hard a one to follow because all of these are going to be right in 1 Thessalonians and one right beginning of 2 Thessalonians. But I want you to listen to, to Paul's mantra, how often he repeats this particular idea when he's talking to this church. Look at verses 9 and 10 in the opening chapter. Pastor King read these just a moment ago. Paul says, For they declare... They themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, 
whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. He's pointing to them to something future, something way future. 1 Thessalonians 2.19, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ? When? At his coming. Paul is looking to their final justification, who they are going to be on that last day because of their hope now. 1 Thessalonians 3.12, and May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all just as we do to you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. The final resurrection. First Thess 4.15 For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. First Thess 5.23 Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not surprisingly, at the beginning of the next epistle, Paul jumps in and he says, And to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. He goes on, he says, When he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. What Paul is saying, he says, when you're coming to Christ, you are joining a faith that has a commonly held belief of a future, a returning king. Gospel hope looks to the promises of God in Christ. It looks to a better day that's not in the immediate future, but it is in the determined future, the will of God, how all things are going to end. Gospel hope has what it most hopes for in already possessing Christ himself so that you long for that return. And you have to understand, this is foundational. This is what our faith is. Peter says it is foundational. He says in 2 Peter 3.10, he says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Revelation 1.8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, Jesus testifies. The beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And even the book of Revelation finishes in this way. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. We confess it in the Apostles' Creed as as an element of our faith. He ascended to heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father. And from thence he shall come to judge the quick, the living, and the dead. But it's not just a regular part of our confession. It's not something that we say as an end in itself. It is a hope that we have now. And it's meant to be a hope as we long for and look for and anticipate and believe and wait upon this promise of the Lord to show up. As we do all of this, we do so even in the midst of our trials, our disappointments, our persecutions, our experiences of the groans, the travails of creation, of all the things that are wrong in our world, we Endure those by hoping in Christ. Hoping what he has accomplished for us, which is a determined future by the will of the Father. And of course, this brings us to that last element of what Paul says. Look in verse 4. We come to the end of this passage we look at tonight. Paul says in verse 4, Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Paul is in this last part of this, this opening session, this opening section, he is highlighting two things that maybe don't always go together, but they are precious truths in this church. He talks about brotherhood or family, and he talks about election. And 
some of you might be going, now, Paul, this is kind of weird. Why didn't you, we're talking about all these things that are these virtues, these, these things that are allowing you to get through difficulties, and why do you want to get into the, you know, kind of the weirder part of systematic theology and these things that people want to fuss about and debate about and throw in election? How does that fit with all of this? Well, most of us know this is a, a gloriously useful doctrine. It is a precious truth that we love. And the family one is obvious. It's, it's wonderful to, to understand the doctrine of, of, of adoption, that we have been brought into the family of God by the grace of God, that we were on the outside and we were brought on the inside because of a love that was undeserved, that was before time, that was, that was God's decision to rescue us from ourselves. We love that. And we love being brought into a community that we think of each other as family and having these connections that, that for many of us, they transcend our worldly family relationships. If they're biological connections, as we say, no, when we are with the church, this is our people. We come home when we come here. But you find out that the Apostle Paul, when, when he deals with this so frequently, Paul wants to talk about this family doctrine, and he wants to talk about it at the same time that he talks about this systematic concern, that he wants to talk about the doctrine of election. So again, one more tour. Romans eight twenty eight. Paul uses this doctrine, invoking this teaching. He, he demonstrates for us that it is a secure family we belong to. How does he do that? He says in Romans 8, 28, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren." Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Paul wants to tell you about why you are a brethren, why you got brought into the family. What does he do? He talks about predestination. He says, this is how you got there. This, this, this choice of God for your benefit before you even knew it. He goes on in that same passage and, and talks about who shall bring a charge against God's elect. It is this family defense. No one is going to attack those who are his. Romans 9, a few verses later. He talks about this being the true family. Romans 9, 6, Paul says, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children, because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time, O come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebekah also conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, having, not having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. The decision was of God. It was to make family out of those who were not family by election. Romans 11, 28 and 29, we're reminded that it's a continual family. Or an abiding family. Romans eleven twenty eight. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. That goes back to Deuteronomy ten fifteen, where it says the Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples, as it is this day. God chose and, and granted them this relationship. We also know that it's an inclusive family. We see this written by Paul in Colossians 3. He says in 
This group, there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies and many other qualities that we desperately need. And of course, there's the passage that Pastor King read earlier in the call to worship, Ephesians 1, where it says in Ephesians 1, 4, just as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself by which he goes on to say he made us accepted in the beloved do you see what he's doing there is that when he wants to talk about election he wants to talk about brother election is what makes you family Who wants to argue against being made family, against God choosing you and taking you from where you were and to put put you into this relationship that should belong only to the beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ? But he says, no, I want to give that to you. I want to have you share in that same inheritance. I want to give you union with him and I want you to be judged in him. There's no better situation in which you could find yourselves. And, and, and so this is why Paul wants to talk about Because this is the precious situation that they now enjoy. Even in the midst of their suffering and their pain and their trials. They know that they are loved. They know that they are chosen. They know they have been called out of the world and into the presence of God. And made a part of this family. Well how does this family here at Woodruff Road respond? Let me be fairly brief on this. Paul gives a a deep and a detailed prayer. And this is good instruction for us in our prayer lives. Not, I guess we should notice it first. It's not an especially long prayer. Certainly there are prayers behind the prayer that he reveals to them when he tells them about how he prays. But Paul is caring for things that are important, that are part of what, what scripture teaches everywhere. He is celebrating a manifest Christian conviction that shows up in those virtues, faith and hope and love. He says these are the qualities to celebrate. It tells us a great deal about what we should care about in other people and what we should pray for is that we should celebrate other members of the body of Christ before our God in prayer. Again, we get caught up in all these things, these needs that people have, these concerns for things going on in their life. There are things that, that, that need attention. There are surgeries that have to happen. There are sicknesses that need to be gotten over. There are jobs that need to be required. All of those are great to pray for. But Paul wants to talk about what he's praying for and seeing in them and rejoicing before God at the work of the Holy Spirit in them that there is manifest faith and manifest love and manifest hope. He'll say in chapter 2, he says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not you and the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. He is celebrating what he sees. And this is something that you can do in prayer and you can do in person. You see somebody doing right, doing good, affirm it. Say, praise God, I see the work that's going on in you. I see your growth here. I see how you made this choice. You did this hard thing. That is commendable in the sight of God. John doesn't mind saying in 3 John 4 when he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. We're part of a mutual obligation society. This is what you are in the church. You have commitments that you, the moment you believed in the gospel of Jesus, 
You were received into the the membership of the church at large. And the moment that you made that good profession before the elders of the church, you were received as a member of this body and you took on obligations. And one of those obligations is to celebrate the faith and the hope and the love that's manifest in others, to let them know about it. And praise God, you know, there's an interesting psychological phenomenon. When you affirm something, it's more likely to be repeated. Think about all the things that you could say to someone else. Talk to them about those things that are good, but most especially... Talk to God about it. And again, what churches are you praying for? Paul is praying for this church. You heard from the list earlier that he's praying for a lot of churches and he's praying a lot for a lot of churches. We have churches that are connected to this church. We have churches in our presbytery. We have churches in northern Kenya and Belize and Honduras and Taiwan and Peru and Albania, Brazil, Newcastle, England, Belgium. Albania, Germany, Hungary, Romania, Indonesia, Zurich, Switzerland, we have a lot of connections. We have Knoxville, Tennessee, Washington, D.C., St. George, Utah. We have churches right here in the upstate. There's a long list in the prayer guide of churches. Where is it? It's in the prayer guide. I think someone strategically planted that there because they want us to pray for these churches. And I think that strategically missionaries send us reports about how they're doing so that we'll know how to pray for them and not only what needs to meet in them but to celebrate before God the work that he's doing in those churches and I confess to you I look at the list and it's a big list but guess what we could do we, we could say hey you guys over here you take a through e and you guys over here you take this one and we, you take this one you take this one just bite off a section of churches to pray for Show up at the Wednesday night meeting and you'll have direction in who to pray for and how to pray for them. This is a burden that we need to bear. We are, we are good as a congregation. We see it often. We share burdens for meals. We share burdens for maintenance. We share burdens for ministry. We show up in these different ways. But we need to share this burden of remembering in the work of prayer, of remembering one another and remembering our churches before God in prayer. And as Paul says, to pray without ceasing. And the last thing is just to remember that enduring part, that, that persistence, all of those things that Paul talked about in verse 3. He says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, your patience or endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. If you follow a Christ who is truly a Lord, that means that he's making demands of you, that you are a disciple, that you are a follower, following him in a direction, in a place where he is going. And what he is calling you to is to work, to labor, to endurance, to persist and persevere in pursuing godliness in every way. And he can do that because he's purchased you by his own blood. So love the work, love the toil, love persevering and following Christ. There is no better place to go. Let's pray together. Our Lord, how we thank you for your work. And we recognize that what we see that's good in Thessalonica and what we discover to be good among us is because your spirit has come and worked and stirred us up and caused us to love those things that you love and to hate those things that you hate, to enable us to persevere. We pray, Father, that you would cause us to continue in these ways that we would prove ourselves to be disciples of the one Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we praise your great name for all that you've done in us. and all.